0: It's go time!
1: Harry Peter Grant Very few names are transcendent across both the Canadian Football League and the National Football League but Bud Grant's certainly was. Welcome everyone to Quick Kicks here on 3rd Down Gamble Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. A monumental figure in the game of football passed away at the age of 95.
2: Bud Grant is synonymous with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I'm a bit young to have been around for his coaching career in the CFL. Kind of caught the tail end of his Vikings career in the NFL. But when you talk about Head coaches in professional football. He's right up there, in my opinion, with guys like Mike Ditka, Vince Lombardi, Dave Matthews, Tom Landry, some of these monumental coaches. Success in both leagues, a Hall of Fame career in both leagues, and a little side note also an NBA champ. Um, he won a, a championship with the Minneapolis Lakers in 1950, and up till the time of his passing, was the oldest surviving NBA champion.
1: He was a multi-sport player when he started in his university days, which were at the University of Minnesota. He was member of the football, baseball, and basketball team. In that era and many eras afterward, up until probably the age of specialty, which came about, I would say, post-2000, players would partake in a lot of different sports, and Bud was one of them. Now, after playing some seasons with the Lakers in Minneapolis, he had an opportunity to play in the NFL and in the CFL. And he chose the CFL because the money was better and he would play four years with the Blue Bombers.
0: As a, as a coach is certainly where he made his impact. And I think that impact continues to be felt. Um, my father was a football coach. He coached with the Hilltops and uh, the Huskies in Saskatchewan and in doing that, he spoke extremely highly of his time with Bud Grant when they were trying to learn what to be doing as a coach. Bud Grant gave junior football coaches like my father and, and Al Lettingham and the, the people who were with the Hilltops the time of day to teach them what he was doing as a professional coach. And I think that legacy lives on. We see it in Canadian coaches like Mark Tressman and others who reached out and spoke about his legacy and how his style of coaching permeated throughout the league and and beyond.
2: And you look at some of the numbers that he put up as well, four Grey cup wins in six appearances as a coach. We know famously he made it to the super bowl on four occasions with the Minnesota Vikings as a coach as well. There's a statue in his honor outside of investors group field in Winnipeg and Still at this point, the winningest coach in Blue Bombers history, 27 regular season wins ahead of current coach Mike O'Shea, who if he stays on the pace he is, has the chance to surpass Bud. But it's a lasting legacy and that name is solidified in the lore of Winnipeg Blue Bombers football in the ring of honor at the stadium and in a lot of different aspects of the Blue Bombers organization. He is
1: the winningest coach in Vikings history. He's 102 wins, 56 losses, and two ties in the regular season with Winnipeg. He is combined one of the winningest coaches in pro football history. His consecutive wins in 58-59, 61-62 for Grey Cups, of course, the very first one he went to in 57 as a coach, he quipped at the time that it felt weird coaching players that were actually older than him But he brought them to that Grey Cup, and ironically, that was the only Grey Cup that Hamilton would win of those five. One thing that we can't lose in all of this, fortune sometimes is your best friend. And in 1956, after the CFL All-Star Game, Bud Grant gave up his seat on an airplane, Trans-Canada Air Flight 810, That plane would crash into a mountain in British Columbia on its way home, and five players on that trip home died, four of them Rough Riders, one Blue Bomber. Fortuitous that that morning he chose not to get on the plane, a career that ensued that would put him on a different mount altogether came his way. You can't say enough about him. The man who would go out in a playoff game at minus 20 in a shirt sleeve prior to the opening kickoff He loved going back to Winnipeg and especially into Manitoba. He loved the outdoors there. He would always make treks back. He always thought fondly of the CFL. He always promoted it. You can't say enough. And as I mentioned in the outset, he's transcendent. He is revered in both the CFL and the NFL. And that
2: speaks volumes. You hear the, the stories and the reverie from people on both sides of the border about what an impact he had on them as coaches, as players, and how important he was for both leagues and the success of the franchises that he was involved with. It's a, a legacy that his family can be proud of, and hopefully we, uh, we as CFL fans will remember everything that he has done for this great league.
1: Speaking of people that are doing things for this league, the Montreal Alouettes ownership situation has now been resolved. And the Alouettes have a new multi-billionaire owner. pierre Carl Peladeau is the person who is now running the show. Of course, Quebec Or is where he's most famously noted.
0: I think this is a great move. I know you two spoke about it on last week's podcast. And uh, to, to bring someone of that nature into the ownership group, I think is going to be phenomenal. He has deep pockets. He's a Quebec advocate and lives right within Quebec. So I think he'll be able to connect to the people who go to the Alouette games. And and this is going to be good for the CFL, in my opinion.
1: He has had a very interesting career in politics. It's now a question for him, given that he's got the Alouettes, what do you do? to maintain this
2: team. One of the big important factors in this transaction is that he is francophone and Québécois. We see how important that is in professional sports in Montreal. The involvement with the Montreal Canadiens and the importance of having a, a francophone general manager and or coach and francophone players so that they can speak to media, both in English and French, and that sense of loyalty to those organizations when they have somebody in place that that is, is French. So I, it's a huge win for Montreal. It's a huge win for the CFL to have somebody local involved in the ownership. A very brief transition time where the CFL as a league was in control of the Alouettes. So the shorter time that The league has to run a team, the better. This was a fantastic move. And let's not forget, he also is very involved in in media. And in a couple of years, those broadcast rights are going to be coming up for bid, uh, both English and French. And you have to think he's going to make a play for those broadcast rights in French.
1: TVA is the network that he owns in Quebec. Certainly, they would be interested, I would think. We'll see how the contract negotiations work at the time. TSN, RDS may be a package deal, and that could mitigate any thought by either side that TVA could have French language rights to themselves. Certainly, though, TVA could do a lot to help promote the Alouettes regardless. I think it's
0: important that that media does that. Uh, You want media to stand behind the product that you have on field and be able to uh, advocate for uh, an entertaining entertaining league. Having TVA, even if they're getting highlights off of RDS, to bring the league forward in a positive light, I think can be nothing but positive for the league and the the fans in Quebec.
2: It poses the question of whether exclusivity is important in these negotiations or if competition is better. We see the NFL for as a prime example where they've got games on Fox, on CBS, on ESPN, on ABC. I think all pretty much all of the major broadcast networks in the US have access to some portion of NFL broadcasts. Is this something that the CFL can look at? does RDS get some games and TVA get some games as the French broadcast go? And does that open the door for possibly Rogers or CBC to get back into broadcasting the English language games as well?
1: Television rights for the CFL are almost unique in the sense that it's only one player that owns them prior to TSN taking the rights in-house completely CBC and TSN, and prior to that, CBC and CTV had shared rights for the Canadian Football League. There are a lot of schools of thought about this. One is is that TSN, because they are allied with the CFL, provides a lot of support, a lot of cash flow, and therefore should not be really concerned about any other bidders because the CFL needs to protect the people that support it. There's another school of thought that says, no, perhaps TSN needs a little bit of a challenge. Having a second network would help promote that. Back when CBC was on the air, they took games that were Saturday afternoons and they had a different style and a different approach. The two sides worked very complementary at the time. Would it be worth it to have a unique package for a CBC, just for sake of argument, where they would get, again, Saturday afternoon contests that are slated for them and they could come out with their own packaging and styling.
0: I think anytime you have media outlets in competition for the product from a league, I think that can benefit the league. Uh, At this point, TSN has been the go-to for some time for the CFL and, and I think they have a good relationship at this point with the CFL. Uh, But I do think if other media entities are going to get into the bidding, I think that could benefit the the, the CFL as a whole and also push TSN somewhat uh, to make sure that the the CFL is first and foremost. And at times, it hasn't been. As we saw this week when Dave Naylor tweeted out Bob Irving's um, questioning of the timing of the announcement on SportsCenter, uh, coming, I think it was about 23 minutes into the show, is where they first spoke of the um, ownership change in in Montreal, and there was some discussion. If you if you follow Twitter, you saw the discussion between a lot of different players, including TSN personalities. At times, it seemed some of the personalities were indicating that they're the only media that really. Gives a darn about the CFL, and and therefore you should almost be happy with what we're doing. is is what it comes across when you read through that Twitter exchange. And if you haven't read or heard the discussion on Podsky Wee, Wee, I I suggest you might take a look at that. They certainly go into depth about that that issue. But if we had other media outlets that were interested in the CFL, I think this could benefit bringing the product more to the forefront in the off season.
2: Sometimes with exclusivity it can breed complacency and that seems to be creeping in a little bit with TSN right now. I agree with you, Pat, they have done great things for the league and elevating the broadcasts, making every game available on television, eliminating local blackouts. All of these things are positive. As CFL fans, we want to see this league survive and thrive. And it almost seems like we're in a situation where fans and podcasters are begging for more content from TSN. We're we're tossing around ideas of how to improve what we would like to see. Unfortunately, right now, it seems to be falling on deaf ears. I, I hope that they do understand and look at those numbers that they get on game days and how much interaction fans have right now and maybe look at bumping up the profile of the CFL a bit.
1: The CFL in recent years has brought on dynamic owners. They've also brought on genius sports. There seems to be a momentum going forward with the league and I would be surprised that there isn't more interest among other networks. And I would believe too, that they would be willing to spend some money to promote the league, to invest in programming. One of the hardest things for Canadian networks, and this is TSN, CBC, you name it, the hardest things for them is to invest the resources into product development when you can just simply write a check and send it over to the states and buy a program from them. It makes it very difficult and it's a huge disincentive, quite honestly, to do anything in-house because your costs go up, your margins come down. It just is something that in Canada we have, as we eroded our Canadian content rules back in the 70s and right through, it has damaged our ability to create more and more Canadian content.
0: And I think many of these leagues do take care of themselves. They're, they're more international in in terms of attracting people from like the NHL, around the world, NBA as well. Um, the CFL is certainly not there. But But those of us who are passionate about the CFL game, as you alluded to, Heath, we want information throughout the course of the year about the CFL. And TSN will put snippets in, but they don't seem to go as deep as they do into some of the other
2: sports. The best allies we have right now to help push that forward are genius sports and single game betting. We've talked at length about both in previous podcasts, and those are two avenues that will drive more interest in the CFL. Hopefully down the road that will result in more coverage and more in-depth information coming forward about the CFL in TSN's coverage or other media sources?
1: The CFL itself is looking at getting a team in the Atlantic time zone. It looks like Schooner Sports Enterprises have bowed out of the race to put a team in Atlantic Canada. But now that the CFL has signed the Alouettes away to Pelado, there is a strong push coming from the commissioner's office that the league now reinvest in the idea of having a 10th team and putting it in either Halifax or Moncton and balancing the two divisions.
0: We've had this discussion previously about 10 teams and, and the advantages of a 10-team season would be phenomenal. Um, one of the biggest drawbacks has always been that stadium. And Randy Ambrosi spoke to that earlier this year in, in the fact that that stadium does not have to be a permanent stadium to begin. It can be much like the Expo Stadium initially. It was more of a temporary stadium that allowed the team to get up and running. And then if the team is successful, local governments would be willing to put money in towards the purchase or building of a uh, regulation-type CFL field.
1: The Lions in British Columbia, while... Wow. BC Place was being renovated in 2010 and 2011, used a temporary stadium to play football. That stadium was full. You may not have all the amenities of the newer stadiums, but as the commissioner alluded, it takes time to develop a market. If you're going to start, start at a manageable level and then
2: work your way up from there and create the need. In challenging economic times, it's, hard to justify expenditures on luxury items like a a new stadium. This would be an opportunity, as the Commissioner has spoken to, a possible five-year or ten-year plan to get that interest in place, get the fan support, the season ticket sales, all of those things up and running, and then look at the investment long-term. I guess the part that scares me a little bit is what happens if five years down the road, this team is in operation, but still does not get that support for a new stadium. Where do you go? Does that whole system collapse? And they start looking at other locations, possibly Quebec City or somewhere else to get that 10th team to continue operating.
1: Uh, the expo was started in Jari Park, And played there for, I believe, eight seasons before they moved to Olympic Stadium. For many people, the move to Olympic Stadium, although increasing the revenue stream for the Expos and crowd sizes, wasn't the greatest because Olympic Stadium was not really that conducive to baseball. You don't want to do that. Most of the stadiums prior to the recent spate that have come online were typically tied to some sort of Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games or some other massive sporting event that would, so for Halifax, for instance, if they had a Commonwealth Games, a stadium may be part of that package. And there you go, you've got your opportunity. The CFL cannot get traction in Atlantic Canada, and they're gonna try with Touchdown Atlantic. Again, they're going back with the Rough Riders and the Argonauts this year. I imagine they'll probably keep those two teams there because they certainly sell out. Question is, where else do you go? Quebec City, Ville de Quebec is one that you could look at. London, Ontario would be another. Windsor, Ontario would be a third. You need a team in the Eastern or Atlantic time zone to make sure that the East has a fifth team. Quebec, especially, is rabid for football. Windsor has Detroit nearby, huge population base ish. And London is kind of in between.
0: And at times we've seen them even move out to to Moncton as well. So, I mean, there's lots of options of of places. And I think in challenging economic times, as you spoke to, Heath, nobody wants to build a stadium and hope they come. You need the team there first to develop that following, to develop that fan base. And then once it's viable, I think it does behoove the city or or local government, wherever that CFL team lands, to become involved
1: for the CFL's aspect of this, the other thing that they're promoting is the fact that, yes, Pierre-Marc Péladeau is now in charge of the Alouettes. They've got Omar Deman in British Columbia. They've got the caretaker, Bob Young, in Hamilton. They've got a lot of new, deep-pocketed owners that are willing to push this league forward. This, I think, has to be a bell ringing somewhere in... Eastern Canada saying, if there's momentum here, here's our opportunity.
2: I guess that's where my question comes in here as to where does that money come from in Atlantic Canada? I will admit my ignorance in not knowing exactly who all was involved in the Atlantic Schooners potential ownership groups in the past. A couple of names that come to mind in Eastern Canada would be Irving and McCain, both huge multinational corporations with a lot of money, and if I'm the CFL and Randy Ambrosi, it's names like that that I am reaching out to I'll refer back to what JC Abbott said
1: on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. The Toronto Argonauts to MLSC are a rounding error. If they lose money it's a rounding error basically they're not hitting the books that hard. The process in Atlanta Canada and now if it turns out to be the Irvings McCain or somebody else that has made their money and is wanting now to own a professional franchise. The CFL franchise is probably your cheapest buy-in of any. The problem, of course, out East, especially Atlantic Canada, is that you need that stadium. You need something to provide enough seats. Temporary seats could get you up to fifteen to 18,000. That's probably enough to support a franchise and with more equalization from the rest of the league it would be very palatable
0: having a stadium where the want to attend outweighs the number of seats would be very beneficial for whichever city builds if you've got 12,000 seats and you've got 20,000 fans that want to come in and see the game yes you can bump your ticket prices up but it also bodes well for the fact that that stadium will not be empty and you can count on a consistent revenue stream of people attending those games. So for me, I think regardless of what the number is, whether it's 12 or 18, I think as long as you can find an area and increase the demand and and have Canadian CFL fans and new fans who are not exposed to the CFL at this time come to those games and experience the excitement, the pace, I I think it bodes well for the league.
2: It will also be a huge win for the U-Sport programs in Eastern Canada, you look across the CFL cities right now and the Manitoba Bisons and Winnipeg Blue Bombers play out of the same stadium, the Stampeders and the Dinos, the Rough Riders and the Rams. So you've got that crossover and it would allow enhancement of those football programs for the universities to have a a world-class training facility. That was a huge part, both in in Regina and in Winnipeg with the new stadiums is how the universities can use those resources and really help build successful programs there. So another, not necessarily an investment partner, but certainly a voice in these negotiations and, and the importance and the benefit for the community.
1: Winnipeg has been chosen as the host for the 2025 Grey Cup. It's been a while since the game has been there but it's a fantastic site. I'm just hoping that by 2025, the Grey Cup game will be played on the first week of November.
2: And the commissioner has hinted that if we get that 10th team up and running by then, you're potentially moving that Grey Cup date a couple weeks earlier. So you need to help push for that Atlantic team to uh, to balance that schedule and get us to November 1st for a Grey Cup.
1: Nothing
0: like a little
2: pressure to get that uh, moving.
1: The USFL is about to start play. The XFL has been playing. There was a concern when the leagues started last year, namely the USFL, that there was going to be a run on talent heading south. Now that the XFL is on board and they've started their season, we are starting to see some of those players that didn't make those teams get signed by the CFL on tryout contracts
2: realistically you look at the names that we have lost from the CFL to move to these spring leagues. Darnell Sankey is the biggest one in my opinion as a younger and very successful player. McLeod Bethel Thompson being the other marquee name, but we know he left more so for family reasons than really any negative feeling from what the CFL offered him. Dakota Prukop is another one. He is going to the USFL, but That star power has not had a mass exodus to these spring leagues, and the biggest challenge might be in getting some of the young talent and how to go about scouting and recruiting players to come up here from that age range, but the older players, the veteran guys, don't seem to be too keen on looking at those options.
0: Some of these leagues, if they have young players, they may want an opportunity to continue to play beyond the XFL, for example. So if they were to come up to Canada and become one of the all-stars here in Canada, they may get a different look from the NFL as well. If if they go through a season and don't get a look, the CFL could look at this as as a place to say, okay, we've got now post-college players that are playing for a year or two and developing. If the NFL doesn't look at them, it may be opportunities for the CFL to look at signing some of the stars away from those leagues as well.
1: Clearly the money is better in the CFL The problem for some players is that if they want to go straight to the NFL, then the spring track is probably better. I just worry about their health trying to do it that way. For some players, Cameron Kelly of the Tiger Cats, who got released early out of his contract, this is a place to make some money. We don't talk about it, but what if you go to the spring league, if you're a Cameron Kelly or Tremaine Washington, And you're looking at getting back into the CFL.
0: Yeah, it gives you some opportunities for more paychecks prior to the CFL. You're going to come into this league potentially a bit late, depending upon your health and how quick that transition goes. So for some of those players, this will be an opportunity for them to do that.
1: And we talk about this pipeline going north or pipeline going south. One of the premier athletes that left the Calgary Stampeders after a Grey Cup win and went to the NFL, has signed a contract extension. He has. Uh,
0: Alex Singleton has signed with Denver for a three-year, $18 million deal that includes $19 million guaranteed. Now, he's been outstanding since he went to the NFL, but he's one of those young players who took a shot leaving the CFL to go to the NFL without any guarantees or money up front. Every now and then, we get players who can make it. He's certainly an extreme talent uh, and has done very well in being one of the leading tacklers in the NFL in each of the past couple of seasons.
2: This is the kind of success that we as CFL fans need to celebrate. It's a huge loss to the league when star caliber players do move south and, and have that success. But for the most part, we generally want to see that success. And Alex Singleton is is a great story. Similar path to somebody like Cameron Wake, who had a, an explosive early career in the CFL and turned that into an a all-star Pro Bowl caliber NFL career. And Alex Singleton, not only is he having success as a player, but as a respected leader as well. He was a, a captain with the Philadelphia Eagles, and that leadership has carried through with the Denver Broncos here as well. He's a player that other football players look up to, and that speaks volumes to the quality of mentorship he got here in the CFL and that ability to move on to, to the big league, if you will.
1: And before we get away from the show, another tremendous talent has passed away. Glenn Weir from London, Ontario. For those of you who remember the CFL from the 1970s, Weir played for the Montreal Alouettes. 203 games with the Alouettes... 72 until 84, of course, the last few were with the Montreal Concords when the team switched names, and he had just a stellar career, five-time East Division All-Star, two-time CFL All-Star, inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, won two Grey Cups. He will be missed. He was one of the greats in Montreal Alouette history. Thank you for listening to our show. Third
2: Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble.
1: Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast audio worth watching.
0: 3rd Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League Player and Game Statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.